Good. I'm glad you're here. It seems like months since uh, we were here together, uh, and I don't. It hadn't hadn't been. Well, maybe it has been since we were all in here together. So um, we do need to keep all of those in the way of this storm in prayer. Uh, it's it's headed back the opposite direction through my home state, South Carolina, than the way the other. I talked to my sister this morning. I said, "What kind of sin are y'all in up there?" <laughs> Man, I, I, I think I'd be repenting and getting to church if I were y'all, but uh, we do need to pray for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 gives you really the reason we're doing this. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. All of church history is that for us. Just as Paul looked back to the Old Testament and said, hey, there's your illustration. All of that is an example for us. We can look back over the last 2,000 years of church history and learn. I want to tell you, a lot of the issues in church today would be solved if we knew our church history better and if we knew some, church, if we knew some biblical theology. So that's why I'm taking you through this outside of the fact that I just find it fascinating and I love to be able to spend some time uh, taking folks through it. Now, this is what we've done. Since we've been gone uh, from, we haven't done this for, well, it has been over a month. Let me remind you where we started. I started back about 350 BC, Alexander the Great, showed you when he died how the empire was carved up into four pieces, mainly to focus you in on Israel. The Seleucids ruled it. The Maccabees came along, and they took it back over, and they reigned pretty well independently from anybody for about 100 years until there was this internal squabble inside of Israel between two groups that eventually become Pharisees and Sadducees, and they go to Pompey the Great, and they say, can you come in and solve this for us? And uh, being the great Italian general that he was, like the mafia, once they come in, you can't get them out. So that's what he did. And I did that to show you the world into which Jesus was born. That That was the nation into which Christ was born. All of these things going on. Then I took you to 70 A.D., and at 70 A.D., I started to talk to you about uh, the period or the age of Catholic Christianity, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to start that tonight. Uh, You're going to just begin to get into that a little bit tonight. But that is Catholic with a small c, and it means universal. And in that period, I talked about in that age or in that collection of time from 70 to about 311, what you have is you have this period of great persecution. It just builds. It builds from the time, you know, what they, as the New Testament closes, you know, the legend is that they boiled John in oil, but he did not die. Uh, He died of old age. He was the only one of the apostles that died of just natural causes. There had been ongoing this persecution. It intensifies. It gets worse uh, over time. And when you get to the 300s, you've got a guy who is now emperor by the name of Diocletian, who is just the personification of absolute wickedness, and he is slaughtering Christians 
at such a rate that the pagan Romans are saying, you got to stop this. This is just too much. There's just too much of this kind of stuff. And so that's where I'm bringing you tonight to the age of imperial Christianity that begins in 312 and is going to go to 590. Well, Diocletian is on the throne, as I've just told you. And uh, Diocletian is head of an empire that is unraveling. And let me tell you what's happening to it. Uh, What's happening to it is this, a number of things, but there is this colossal outpay from the government to the military and to civil issues so that they can keep that army together to maintain control of the world and so that they can feed all the citizens of Rome. There are so many people who are taking from the government at this time that are receiving from the government so many far more than those who are paying taxes. What happens is this. Uh, You've got all of that taking place. Their monetary system is losing now. It is being devaluated to the point to where their money is almost worthless. But do you see any use in studying history? You know, you can read history because you love it, but you'd better study history to learn what not to do. Well, that's what's happening. That's what Diocletian is looking over. And so what he does is this. He splits the empire. In fact, I've got a map to show you. He divides it in two. You've got uh, what is going to be the empire to the west, and uh, Rome will be the capital of that. And what you will have is the empire to the east, And they're going to come to this little area right here, the Bosphorus, that little strip of land between the Black Sea and the Sea of Mamara right there that dumps into the Aegean Sea. And they're going to build a city. He's going to build a city right there. And it's going to become known as uh, um, Byzantium. That becomes known as Constantinople. That is today Istanbul which is the capital of Turkey. Well, that's what Diocletian is going to do. He says it's too much for one man to run. Uh, All of this is going on in the empire. It's just beginning to unravel. And so he splits it and he puts one person in control over in Rome and he goes to Byzantium and he is going to rule for there for a few years. You know, the old saying is wickedness never wears out, but uh, he was pure wickedness and he was getting tired. And he decided, I don't want to bother with this anymore. I'm going to retire. And Diocletian declares to the, to the whole Roman Empire, I have solved all the problems of Rome, and I retire. So that's what he did. He, he just retired. Now, he's going to be followed by a guy whose name is uh, Maxentius. Maxentius is going to become emperor now in Rome, And they overlook a couple of people in doing that. They overlook a guy who is a great general who is up in Gaul. He's up in northern France or in the area of Germany. He has all of these Roman legions there, and his name is Constantius. Constantius has a son whose name is Constantine. Constantius is this wonderful 
Roman general who has the loyalty of all of these legions, and they absolutely look over him to put Maxentius on the throne in Rome. He gets a little burned by that. But he has to go off and fight the people called the Picts. You ever heard of the Picts? P-I-C-T-S? Now, I'm going somewhere with all of this, so you just hang on with me. The Picts are essentially the Highlanders of Scotland. And the Highlanders, the Scottish Highlanders come down and they ruin everything the Romans tried to build. So he's got to go and deal with them. And he gets there and he gets sick. His son Constantine comes to be with him and he dies in York of England. Constantine then is there. All of these legions are notoriously faithful to their generals. And they look at Constantine this son of their great general who proved himself in battle, there he is right there. Now, this guy's going to change world history. Uh, they look to him. He's proven himself in battle, and all of Constantinus's legions say, you are now Caesar. Now, you got something going on here. You got a Caesar down in Rome, and you got Roman legions saying, hey, Constantine, you're Caesar and uh, there's going to be a battle, and that's called the Battle of Malvian Bridge, 312. It's one of the most important battles in all of history. Now, let me tell you what happens. Constantine brings those Roman legions down from out of England and down out of Gaul, and he comes. Now, hold it right there. Back up one. Uh, go back to one. Let me show you something right here. He brings them down to this area of the Malvian Bridge. Maxentinus has brought out his Roman army, uh, and this is right there at Rome. And uh, what Constantine does is this. Now, he's a brilliant general. He's a great tactician. He is a tremendous strategist, and he leaves the bulk of his army back in the tree line over here. And he only comes out with a small contingency of soldiers and as he comes out, um, uh, Maxentinius uh, is drawn across the bridge with his army, thinking, well, I can go and defeat him. There's nothing here. He gets out on that bridge. And do you see these right here? There's a bridge in there, but there are also these pontoon bridges. See these boats? They would put like bridges across these boats. And they came out over here, and as they came out across this bridge and these pontoon bridges with the army, Constantine unfurls his army out of the tree line, and they, and they catch all of this Roman army here on the bridges, and they just slaughter them. Maxentinius is on that bridge. He falls off in the middle of the battle, off of that bridge, and into the water. Now you can go to the next picture. He falls off of there, and he drowns in the river. And when he does, Constantine becomes emperor of Rome. Now, the interesting thing is this. Now, I had to set all of that up to tell you the interesting thing that happened. That was October the 28th, 312, 1,706 years ago uh, in a couple of weeks. October the 28th. But on October the 27th, 311, I'm sorry. In 311, what happened was th in 312 uh, was this. Constantine had a vision. Back that up one, one more time, just one time. 
Do you see, do you see what's painted on these shields right here? Do you see this? Well, just hang on to that, and I'm going to tell you, because that figures in. On every one of these shields, you're going to find that. Constantine had a vision. Some say he had a dream. Others say he had a vision that he saw something up in the sky, and what he saw in the sky was the Cairo. It's two letters. It's called the Christogram is what it's called, that right there. It's the first two letters of the, of the Greek noun, Christ. The chi is like we call it an X. Uh, in Greek, that's a chi. This is not a P. It's a row. Cairo, Christos. That's called a Christogram. Well, Constantine had this vision, and he saw this up in the sky. And he heard the voice of Jesus. Now, this is his account. He said, I heard Jesus say in Latin, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. And so he had an experience, and the next morning before the battle, he called all of his soldiers together, and he told them this, I've heard the voice of Jesus Christ, and I am now a Christian. And he said, he commanded us to fight in this sign, the Cairo, the first two letters of Christos, which is Christ in Greek. And he had all of his soldiers paint that on their shields. So when they went into battle and they won that battle at Malvian Bridge, he saw in it a fulfillment of what he said Christ said to him. And when Maxentinius fell into the water and drowned, he compared it to Pharaoh being drowned in the Red Sea. And he was convinced that God had made him emperor of Rome and that he had won that battle because of that. So he becomes emperor of Rome. Now, that is, that is incredibly unusual to get uh, a Roman emperor to say something like that, I am now a Christian. In fact, let me tell you what that's kind of, let me just Let me just tell you, I have racked my brain to try to figure out what is a way that I can explain that all right, we're at odds with Putin and we're at odds with Xi in China. And it would be like Donald Trump getting us into a war with China. And tomorrow morning, he goes to the Pentagon and says, I've heard Jesus Christ. I am a committed Christian. I want everybody to paint a cross on every ship and on every plane and on every piece of body armor and they go to battle, and in one battle, we defeat the East, and Donald Trump becomes not only king of the West, but he becomes king of the East as well. That's how, that's how outlandish this is. It's just unbelievable. It's like Nancy Pelosi getting saved and running against Trump and defeating him and standing up before Congress and the whole nation saying, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ, and nothing else will be tolerated except a complete commitment to Jesus Christ. It just boggles your mind to think what just happened with this Roman general who is now emperor of the Roman Empire, who is now Caesar of the Roman Empire. Well, he comes to the throne of Rome, and he begins, listen, there's a lot of debate. I've read a lot of history, and in a lot of history, there are those who say, oh, this was just political expediency. He was never saved. He was never committed to Christ. Then I read others who were 
who are off the other direction. I, I've got to tell you from what I read, something happened to the guy. And uh, from what happened to him, it leads me to believe he had some kind of encounter with Christ. I don't know if that old story's true or not. He claims that it was. But when he comes to the throne in uh, 311, 312, one year later in 313, you have the Edict of Milan. Now, the Edict of Milan is this. It says that Christians can never be persecuted again. So he stops all of this massive persecution of Christians. It also said every man was free to worship as his conscience led him. Now, that was unheard of in that day. Nobody had ever done anything like that. And he began to make some decisions that we would look at and say, oh, man, that's great that he's doing this. But some other things began to happen at the same time to where you begin to see this is forming the basis of how the Roman Catholic Church will set up its ecclesiology. For example, what some of the good things. In 321, he declares Sunday to be a permanent holiday. Every Sunday was a day when no one would work. He exempts churches and Christian ministers from taxation. Uh, and listen, a lot of people argue, say, well, why should they get, ta you know, why should they be exempt? Well, he was following what the Roman Empire had already done. They gave uh, pagan religions the same thing. So he just simply came and he said, this should apply to Christians as well. He began to favor Christianity. He talked about Christianity. This is the guy last week that uh, Barry uh, shared with you about the Council of Nicaea in 325. This is the guy that calls that council together. He pulls all the church together so that the church can get on the same page. And then this is the guy that begins to fund. Where do church buildings come from? This is where it comes from. He begins to fund church buildings and to say, let's go and build churches. He was in the church planting business. Um, so those were all good things that uh, Constantine did. But now here's some things that, that he did the other way that, that, that show you that there's still some work to be done in the guy's life. He held on to the title Pontifex Maximus. Now, that was a title of the Roman Caesars before it was ever the title of the Pope. You see that the Pope had picked that up from the Roman Caesars, Pontifex Maximus, uh, the great bridge builder. He maintained that. Everybody since Augustus uh, had, had held that title. Every Roman emperor held that title. He held on to that because he considered himself that. The second thing I'd say is this. He saw himself as the head of the church. He saw himself as the one who led the church. He ruled, number three, bishops the same way that he ruled civil servants. In other words, he treated preachers the same way that he treated everybody who worked for the government. So there you begin to see this mashing together of these two worlds, the political world and the, and the church, the religious world. They're beginning to be melded in together and the fourth thing was this, is that he demanded absolute obedience to every official pronouncement, whether it conflicted with the church or not. You're going to follow what I'm telling you to do. So there you have Constantine. You just begin this period known as 
the age of imperial Christianity. Now, I've gone through that. I'm just going to stop for a minute. You got a question? Because I got to back up now, and I've got to tell you what's going on in the Roman Empire. I've shown you that. Now, I've got to back up and catch you back up with what's going on. I've already told you that they are in such a state now in Rome uh, and in the empire where more people are receiving government checks than are paying taxes. And so you've got a huge problem that's going on. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing the unraveling of the Roman Empire. Now, we generally think, well, the Roman Empire fell. Well, it's like that happened on a Saturday night. Um, It took hundreds of years for that to play out. If you remember when the Berlin Wall came down, there'd been things going on for 70 years that led up to that. That just didn't happen on a day in December back in, when was it, 89 when it came down? Uh, Back in 89. Uh, Things had been going on for 70 years that brought that about. So things began to go on in the Roman Empire. Let me just give you a couple of those things. In uh, 378, you have the Battle of Adrianople with the Goths, and they defeat the Romans. Now, they defeat the Romans, but look, they don't come in. They don't want the government. They don't want to take over and rule the nation. They just want to move in and live there. They just want the government to continue on. You continue to pay for our stuff. Send our kids to school. Give us food stamps. Give us housing. We'll just move in. We don't want the government. Just let us move in. Do you you see why you need to read history? So you have that in 378, early in the 400s, maybe around 412, 413, um, Alaric and the Visigoths come. They defeat Rome, but they don't want the government either. They just want to move in. They just want to come in. They just, hey, we just want to come and live here with you guys. And so all of this is going on. In 452, you've got the biggest wave of destruction that is going to sweep across the world at that time. Do you know what it is? It's called Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun comes, and he's going to sweep across Europe, and as he does, everybody's evacuating out in front of him. Everybody, just like out of this hurricane, this hurricane hit today, everybody has evacuated out in front of it. So you've got huge people groups that are running out in front of this guy who is going to sweep across Europe, and they're running down into Italy, and they're running into the Roman Empire, and Rome has got more of these people that are coming in than it possibly knows what to do. And so all of these people begin to pile into the empire They begin to take on Roman custom. They begin to take on Roman dress. They begin to take on um, all of the culture of Rome except for one thing, language. They won't speak Latin. Thank God. (laughs) Latin, Latin, hard as it can be. First it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. You ever taken Latin? You're glad that it's a dead language. You're just thankful that it's dead. They came in and they killed out Latin, thank the Lord again, and they take up residence there and they begin to join the Roman army. And so the Roman Empire now is unraveling faster and faster. It can't accommodate all of this. 
And as it's taken in all of this and unraveling, you come to the last of the Roman emperors, a guy by the name of Romulus Augustulus. That's interesting because by tradition, the first emperor or, or the founder of Rome was Romulus. The last emperor of Rome was Romulus. He wasn't emperor very long because a German, the first barbarian, the first outsider to come and to take the throne of Rome, Odiacer the German. Odiacer comes in, takes the throne, is crowned king of Rome, and the Roman Senate meets, and they are in absolute disbelief. Rome's gone. It is no more. It's fallen. They sneak Caesar's tiara and the purple robes of Rome, and they sneak them off now to Byzantium, to Constantinople, so that the emperor in the east will hold that stuff, the tiara of Rome and the purple robes. Now, I've got to stop with that and go back over here, and let me grab a hold of Constantine. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and before we get out of here at 10 o'clock, I will show you. I've got to go back over here, and let me grab a hold of Constantine. And let me show you what Constantine had done before all of that that sets all of this up. Constantine, around 330, went over to Byzantium and decided he was going to rebuild that city, and he was going to build it as a Christian city. And so he goes there with his architects and his engineers, and he's walking through the city, and there is a, there is a church that was there called the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom. It's still standing today, but it's a mosque. It's called the Blue Mosque today. But the Hagia Sophia, I don't have a picture. I should have got a picture of it for you. It's a beautiful, it, it was a beautiful church that had been built there. And um, Constantine was going to do something that no Roman emperor had ever done before and nobody ever thought that a Roman emperor would do. He was going to go to church. And he went to church, and in that worship service, he gave thanks to God for allowing him to take Rome, and he dedicated the city of Constantinople, which is today Istanbul. He dedicated that city to God. Now, that was just unbelievable. Nobody could believe that that happened. You've got this Roman emperor who doesn't go and thank the gods of Rome, who doesn't go and pray to all the pagan gods that Rome had worshipped. He goes in now, and he gives thanks to Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just wrap up Constantine. Constantine is baptized near his death, uh, and this is part of where sprinkling comes in, um, Constantine was too ill to get out and to be baptized, uh, so they just take water and they pour over him. And the whole concept was, well, if that was good enough for Constantine, that's good enough for me. Um, so that's where it begins to be diverted to where the church then would go to sprinkling, and we will eventually get that down to infants, but that's for another Wednesday night uh, in, in uh, just a couple of weeks. So Constantine does that, but now listen, this is another reason why I think something happened to Constantine. After he was baptized, he never put the royal purple robes of the emperor of Rome on ever again. He stayed in his baptismal robes until he died. 
He stayed in those, and uh, which leads me to believe something took place in his life. Now, let me tell you what's happening in the empire is this. What's happening is that you've got a lot of people that are now beginning to come into the Christian church who've never been converted. But because it must be good, August, uh, Constantine did it, and uh, I, I want to do business with Rome, and I want to be accepted in Rome, and Christianity is now seemingly the thing of the emperor, so we're going to now become Christian because it's a good thing to do business-wise. And boy, we live in the South. And there's a lot of people in church today in the South simply because that's just good business to do. Check your salvation. Be sure you're saved and that you're not just here because it's the cultural thing to do. Well, What's taking place is this. You've got Rome still in the West, and you've got Constantinople now uh, that is seen as uh, the second capital. Or you've got two capitals of one empire, and you've got two bishops, and now it sets up a power play between two bishops. The bishop of Rome and the bishop of now, that's what they call preachers, folks. Technically, by the New Testament, I'm a bishop. That doesn't mean that I oversee all these other... That, that's, a latter, that's a later addition to that word. Bishop just simply means you a preacher. You a preacher of a church. That's all it means. So, you've got this preacher in Rome. He's a bishop. And you've got this preacher in Constantinople who's a preacher and there is going to be this play on who's going to be the number one bishop of all the churches. 381, uh, Theodosius is now emperor, and Theodosius is um, a Christian, and he calls for a council at Constantinople, like 40 years earlier, or a little more than that, in uh, Nicaea, and he wants the church to come together. He wants the bishops of the churches, the pastors of the churches to come together, and he wants them to reaffirm what they decided at the council of Nicaea. I want you to come together, and I want you to agree. I want you all to come together and agree on these things that were settled back uh, in that time. Well, that's what's taking place. So there are a number of things that are going to give rise to this bishop. Let me just give you a couple of those tonight. Number one is Rome itself. Rome was the capital of the imperial empire. Rome was a major city. If you read Montefort uh, in his book on Jerusalem, you will see that, that, uh, uh, that Rome at that time was the largest city in the then known world, probably a million people. You had anywhere around... Uh, Two to 300,000 Christians out of that million population that was there. And uh, it was the city where Paul came and was imprisoned, where Peter came and was imprisoned, where Paul was tried and uh, executed, where Peter was tried and executed, where Paul was buried, where Peter was buried. So Rome essentially becomes the home of the church. Uh, the second thing is... Uh, the bishop of Rome that I started talking about. 
There was a bishop of Rome by the name of Damasus. And when Theodosius called this council of Nicaea, he didn't invite Damasus to that uh, council. He only invited all of the bishops in the east and not those in the west. And they got together and they make a statement there that is a very interesting statement. And this is what they say. They say that the bishop of Constantinople uh, is only preceded by the bishop of Rome. Now, listen to what was just said. The bishop of Constantinople is only preceded by the bishop of Rome. Now, what did I just tell you happened in 378? Rome was attacked by, at the battle of, by, I'm going to cry, by the Goths at the battle of Adrianople. Three years later, Theodosius calls this council because he believes Rome is about to be done in, you see. And so not to ruffle anybody's feathers, let's just say that the bishop of Constantinople is preceded only by the bishop of Rome, and the bishop of Rome is about to bite the dust because Rome is about to bite the dust. Politics in the church. You've never heard of that before. Well, uh, Damasus is got his nose out of joint over this, and the next year in 382 calls a council in Rome. And in Rome, nobody has ever said this before, but Damasus says this, the Holy Roman Church takes precedence over all other churches, not on the ground of synod decision, not because of what you did at that council or this council or some other council, but because it was given the primacy by the words of our Lord and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Ooh, Matthew chapter 16. You got your Bibles? Go there. Because this is where it gets really interesting now. Damasus, the bishop of Rome, is now going to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says to Peter, he says uh, to him there, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16, verse 18, Damasus takes that passage right there, and in an exercise of gross interpretation, says that Jesus was talking about Peter, and he's saying, Peter's the guy who came to Rome, Peter died in Rome, Peter was buried in Rome, hence all bishops of Rome are in succession of Peter. That's what he's saying. You begin to see all of this come together? Well, Damasus dies, and there is a guy who comes to the throne called Leo the Great. There he is right there. It's nighttime. There he goes. Santa Claus. Santa Claus becomes Pope of Rome. Uh, that's Leo the Great right there. And Leo the Great is going to add to now what Damasus had said, 
And what he says is this. I am, this guy says, I am the preeminent bishop of all Christianity. Now, he's just placed himself as the pastor over everybody. I'm the preeminent bishop of all Christianity because I follow in the steps of Peter. Isn't that interesting? Now, this guy, he's a pretty good guy. He does some things that really uh, endear the city of Rome. Those that are not just Christian as well as Christians, he does some things that endear the people to him. Now, let me just give you one of those. I just told you about somebody sweeping through the Western world, Attila the Hun. Well, Attila comes down and he's going to come in. This is Raphael's painting of Leo going out to meet uh, Attila the Hun. Uh, Leo decides, I'm going to go out and I am going to meet Attila myself. And he does, and he meets with Attila the Hun, and he looks at him, and he says, you turn around, and you go back where you came from. Rome is the city of God. And Attila was impressed with him. So impressed with him that he looked at his soldiers, and he said, y'all just loot the city for 14 days, but don't you touch the hair of a person's head. You leave them alone. They went in. They looted Rome for two weeks, for 14 days, and they left. And the people in Rome were so elated that they were not hurt that they rallied around Leo the Great. They rallied around the Pope. And so he endeared himself to the people, and uh, he called himself the bishop of all Christianity. Well, let me tell you, there were a lot that rejected that. A lot rejected that. The church rejected all of this. They rejected Leo as the head of the church. They rejected the line of succession. And the question is, why did they reject all of that? Let me give you nine quick things. Nine quick things uh, that will help you see that there was a rejection of all of this, but it did no good. Number one, it conflicts with what Jesus said about servant leadership. Number two, it conflicts with what the Bible says about biblical wisdom and leadership. Number three, it conflicts with New Testament ecclesiology. There is, you see no outside hierarchy anywhere in the New Testament. You see a pastor who is the pastor of a local congregation. What's happening is the church is beginning to imitate the government of imperial Rome. Number four, it conflicts with the New Testament view of Peter. After, after Pentecost, after Peter finally gets himself straightened out and he preaches that great sermon at Pentecost and he's out there and he goes to the Gentiles, Paul has to correct him. You got a pope being corrected by somebody else. Paul, you remember? because he's showing partiality to the Jews and he's ignoring the Gentiles. Number five, it contradicts what Peter calls himself. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I am a fellow elder. He doesn't say, I am the Pope. Number six, the New Testament is silent on Rome. The New Testament doesn't call Rome the holy city. Um, you know, Jerusalem is... <laughs> Jerusalem's the holy city, not Rome. Number seven, the New Testament speaks of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles, Ephesians 2.20, and the chief cornerstone of that is Jesus Christ. 
Number eight, Damasus assumed Matthew 16 was speaking of Peter as the rock on which Jesus would build his church. Now, I'm reading this because my time's going, and I want you to get this. Now, you need to listen to this. If what Jesus was saying, if Jesus had intended for that to be, that he was going to build the church on Peter, he would have said, he would have said, you are Peter, and upon you I will build my church. But he uses a second person, personal pronoun. He did not say that. He said, you are Petros, a stone, and upon this Petra, feminine pronoun, massive bedrock, I will build my church. Beyond that, all through Scripture, it is Jesus Christ that is seen as the rock, not Peter. In fact, Peter says that himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone. And number nine, if Peter was in a primacy position, the New Testament then knows nothing about succession. If Peter was to be the head of that, then there is no succession because the New Testament teaches nothing about succession. If it were what uh, Damasus was saying and what Leo acted on, it would be Peter is exalted, Peter is the rock, Peter is the bishop, the bishop of Rome is exalted over all others, and that the bishop has a line of succession, just like they claim today. Now, that's, that was rejected completely by the church. You say, but oh, wait a minute. If that was rejected by the church, how did they end up with a pope? Next week.